to the Yukon Internal Medicine Podcast. This is Oliver Shujan, your host and a chief medical resident at the University of Connecticut. A quick disclaimer before we start, all opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. With that in mind, I'm excited to introduce our neurology series where we go over neurological conditions frequently encountered in primary care setting and on medical wards, and learn how to diagnose and manage them like a true neurologist. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Dennison Emerson, a former neurology chief resident at UConn and currently a vascular neurology fellow at UConn Hartford Hospital, but also a good friend of mine. Headache is one of the most common complaints both inpatient and outpatient, yet not an easy one to differentiate. Better understanding of the types of headaches and their unique presentation can help us better triage patients, so diagnosis and treatment are not delayed. In this episode, we'll focus on commonly encountered types of headaches, their etiologies, diagnostic approaches, and options for prophylaxis and treatment. Without further ado, I'll hand it over to Dennis to walk us through the world of headache. Hey, thanks for having me, and uh, I'll try my best to make it a little bit clearer for you all. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, Something we all remember from medical school are the major types of headaches, such as migraine, tension, cluster, etc. But you know better than all of us that the list doesn't end there, and there are other important types of headache we as medicine residents should know well and be able to recognize. Would you be able to walk us through the different types of headaches and their etiologies? Sure, I'll I'll try my best. Um, What I've always done is I try to remember one specific type of headache and make that my prototype. Migraines being one of the most common headache disorders has always been my prototype, so I like to start there. But most headache physicians and neurologists like to categorize their patients into a headache type. So we have migraine, we have trigeminal autonomic cephalgias, which I'll refer to as TACs from here onward. We have tension type headaches. And lastly, we have this amorphous category called new daily persistent headache. And just to start, I'll get right into it. So migraines are one of the most common headache disorders that are out there. We can start with the uh, existing criteria for migraine. And we start with a patient who typically comes in with moderate to severe intensity pain Their headache duration is usually somewhere between four and 72 hours. That timeline is a guide, but it helps you catch patients on both ends, some with shorter and some with longer. And those headaches are meant to be untreated. So that's how long is your headache gonna go on if you didn't take Tylenol or ibuprofen and you let it run its course. These headaches are associated with a unilateral location. They're pulsating or throbbing in quality. And you really need to have at least the nausea slash vomiting or photophobia and phonophobia. And the key diagnostic criteria here, or the the hint, is that these headaches should become aggravated with physical activity. And that is oftentimes a linchpin in making the diagnosis. We do need to keep in mind that not everyone reads the textbook and people can be a little weird. And... Oftentimes, you can get migraines that will confuse you. So you can have patients who present with bilateral pain. 
their pain can be non-throbbing. We have this characteristic that we call deformed frustrate, which basically means it's atypical. So we have the diagnostic features for migraine, i.e. the patient may have a weird headache sensation, but it meets the criteria through the other features like photophobia and phonophobia. And the understanding is that the underlying pathophysiology for these headaches are rooted in what we think is migraine. And understanding that when we have patients with that underlying pathophysiology, that they'll respond to a typical migraine treatment. And when we're thinking of migraines, the important things to consider is that not everyone's going to come in and say, hey, I've had a headache for four to 72 hours and it's throbbing and it's on this side. You have people who have headaches that they'll come in and say, hey, I have sinus headaches, but my ENT looked at my head and said, I'm completely fine, but my Flonase isn't working. And once you dig into the history, you need to ask the questions to elicit the specific migraine history. That can be compared to tension type headaches, which are very vague and amorphous. And you'll see the clear line there that a tension type headache is listed as anywhere between 30 minutes to seven days. And this is the dull, achy, think of it. If you were to look at a graph, it's just a straight, steady line of pain. And there may be slight undulations, but these patients are just like, my head just hurts all the time. And it's very vague, sometimes squeezing, but it can be amorphous. And the key thing that differentiates it from migraine is the lack of worsening with physical activity. So when you have a patient who has these weird symptoms, steady throbbing, or even just steady pain, but they're like, my headaches just absolutely get worse with any sort of physical activity. Take a step back and say, hey, is this a migraine or is this tension type headache that I'm dealing with? And there are some headache physicians who believe that there's no such thing as a severe tension type headache, that if you have severe disabling pain, then that is more likely to be another headache disorder. When we compare that headache now to a trigeminal anomic cephalgia and the one that we see most commonly, which is cluster headache, we see a complete difference in severity. Cluster headache, as you all kind of learned in school, is the one that's just like the excruciating severe pain, but what you typically get is this headache in the retroorbital or temporal region that is excruciating with associated autonomic features. The autonomic features can be pretty vast. They can be swelling, conjunctival injection, sweating. What are the autonomic symptoms due to in the cluster headache? So the sympathetic symptoms related to trigeminal cephalgias are thought to be related to sympathetic overexcitability, typically brought through the trigeminal nerve distribution. Your sympathetic fibers travel along your external carotid as well as your internal carotid, and the ones that specifically supply the face travel along the blood vessels that are distributed to the face from the external carotid artery. The idea is that there is some over or under activity within this distribution, usually over activity. And the root of all of these tacks is thought to be in the hypothalamus, which is what regulates this sympathetic activity. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. 
Um, I actually had a quick question about the migraine headaches you just described, and it sounds like the key differentiating feature between a migraine headache and a tension headache is worsening of symptoms with exercise. That That is a key feature, and that actually leads into the tax and cluster as well, because when you see your, if you think of your typical migraine patient, they're like, I want to hide in a dark room and, co- that, and cover my head. That was my question. Too. Yeah, because all of my migraine patients, I cannot picture them exercising. They, they want to go into a dark room and try to sleep it off with some medication. So do you often see in your clinic patients who actually exert themselves and can provide you that history? And, and I'll clarify this. The, the exertion that I can say is, can be even minor. Like if you think of physical activity as even like going up the stairs or trying to do the dishes or doing any sort of anything that's physical. And when you compare those patients to your cluster headache patients, these are the patients that will actually have some irritability. They'll want to pace around the room when they have a headache. And you'll see that day and night kind of feature. Your cluster headache patients, their headaches are shorter. They're like, my headaches are between 15 minutes to 180 minutes. They have this dineural variation. You, you know, you hear about the case where they're like, I woke up from sleep and I was just grabbing my eye and my eyes were tearing and it was the worst thing that's ever happened. And it happens every night around a certain period of time or it happens in March through June of every year. And there's often this calendar time variation that fits it that can clue you in that you're dealing with a cluster headache. And the reason it's so important to put a name on it is because it's going to, and we'll talk about it later, but it's going to change what you treat patients with. And if you can think of how severe and debilitating these symptoms are, quickly figuring out what they have is going to help you trial them on the appropriate medications. So going forward, when you're seeing a patient and you're doing their review systems and their history, there are things that can clue you into whether you're dealing with a migraine patient or a cluster headache slash TAC patient. Migraine patients tend to have a family history or a personal history of migraines that began early in in life, and that can clue you in. And you shouldn't be alarmed if headaches are different than they were when they were younger. Headaches can evolve, but it is something to keep in mind and pay attention to and ask how they've changed and how they've worsened. Another important feature to ask is if headaches can worsen around somebody's menses or what we call uh, if there's a catamineal association, because we do know that changes in hormone balances can trigger or worsen headaches. And one that'll help you clue into the diagnosis and it'll help you treat them appropriately. Thank you, Dennis. That sounds like a good summary of major headache types, but I know there is more. So I was hoping you could just quickly touch base on some other important headache types that we should be able to recognize. Yeah, of course. Another important headache, and it falls into our text, is paroxysmal hemicrania. If you think of this as cluster headache light, I like to think of it as, not because it's any less disabling, but just because of uh, comparison's sake. It's shorter, so 2 to 30 minutes is a typical attack of paroxysmal hemicrania. It can happen more frequently, whereas cluster headache patients tend to have one a half attack to eight attacks every day. That sounds horrible. Yeah, but if you compare that to your hemicrania attacks, they can have up to 40 a day. 
So these patients are giving you the history that, hey, I get this attack and I run to my pantry for some Tylenol. By the time I get it and wash it down, the headache's already gone. So they kind of get frustrated because they're trying to treat their headaches the only way they know how. But by the time they can do anything about it, their attack has quote unquote resolved. But lo and behold, they get another attack within 30, 40 minutes and they don't know what to do about it. And Super frustrating. Extremely. And they come in extremely frustrated and it can be one of the most satisfying things to treat because although these patients have these frequent headaches, they can also have autonomic features typically locked to one side. If you think of the name hemicrania, it just means half your head, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a side locked headache and they'll have some autonomic features. And the key thing here is that they're exquisitely endomethacin responsive. So what we do is we do an titration of endomethacin in these patients and their headaches just go away. And it's extremely satisfying and they don't respond typically to traditional migraine therapies. Do you have to take it prophylactically? They do. And so that is where it becomes a shared decision as to whether you're going to continue it indefinitely versus during a period in which you're expecting to have an attack. And if you think of hemicrania, there's kind of the extended version of it called hemicrania continua, where it's almost the exact same features, but the patients just never feel right in between. So they'll give you these brief undulating headaches where they say it's kind of like the tension headache of the tax, where they're like, my right side of my head or my left side just never feels right. But then I have these brief attacks that come through and it gets worse. But in between, I just don't feel right on that side. It just feels uncomfortable. And they're typically mm -hmm. retroorbital, temporal, within that area in the V1 distribution. But that's not necessarily a deal breaker. And the same thing, using endomethacin can help these patients significantly. But just like we alluded to, yeah. endomethacin is not benign, but we weigh the risks and benefits and how debilitating their headaches are. Makes sense. All right. Do we have any more types of headaches to go over? We have some weird ones that I think are just fun trivia to know. There are headaches called hypnic headaches, where you just get headaches as you're sleeping, and they can be pretty severe and brief. But the curious thing about them is that they respond to caffeine, which seems counterintuitive. That is. <laughs> and you have primary stabbing headache, where patients will pick out a location on their head and will feel like an ice pick is stabbing them in their head multiple times a day. And picking that out is key because the treatments are different than migraine. We have headaches that are only associated with sexual activity. And so you have to have a great relationship with your patient for them to open up and tell you, hey, the only time I have this headache is when I am having sex with my significant other. And so it's really important that, you, you know, you get to know your patients. What's the underlying pathophysiology of that? I have no clue. <laughs> I'm if sorry. If urologist has no clue, I feel better about not knowing. So, <laughs> I, I'm sure somebody somewhere figured it out, but I didn't. Sorry. <laughs> um, just of note, just names to know and things to think about is that within our tax, we talked about cluster headache. We talked about paroxysmal hemicrania. The other ones to know that there are shorter and more brief attacks uh, called Sanctensuna. And they're basically sudden unilateral neurologiform attacks or sudden unilateral neurologiform attacks with conjunctival injection. And essentially, these are just 
very short headaches and they're associated with those same autonomic features and a similar underlying pathophysiology. It's just that these headaches tend to respond better to the anti-epileptics like lamotrigine, Topamax. Mm -hmm. uh, and so knowing that they exist and the, the treatment paradigm changes is the, the key here, that it's not just getting the diagnosis in clinic. Oftentimes we don't get these diagnoses in a day. We get to know our patients. This history evolves, but premature anchoring is a definite way to cause injury to your headache patient. That's very interesting. Uh, my last question on the headaches before we move on to treatment is, is there a diagnostic term for headache from taking your board exams for nine hours? There might be. There might be. We should come up with one. Neuralgia internal medicinica. I think that might that, be a that good one. That sounds like a good one. Yep. Yeah. All right. Perfect. So now we've gone over different types of headaches, and it sounds like most of them can be diagnosed by history and physical exam alone. But we do need to keep in mind that no one compares to a neurologist when it comes to physical exam. So for a mere mortal such as us, medicine residents, what are some of your pearls of wisdom on how to work up um, each of those headache types? I think you guys got to give yourself some credit here. You all are very great at the neurological history. And actually with headaches, the history is king. And when you're evaluating your headache patient, I like to go through a mnemonic called SNOOP. Dr. Grossberg from the Headache Center taught it to me when I rotated with him, but it's been made in many iterations. And the way I go through it is the S is the initial part of my kind of constitutional review of systems. I look for fevers, chills, weight loss, signs of malignancy, history of immune suppression from medications or from HIV, IV drug use impaired consciousness, cognitive decline, all of these clinical history features that give you a hint that, hey, something other than just a primary headache disorder is going on here is my initial start. And then N is where, you know, you really have to do the exam and you're really looking for focal neurological deficits. And that can range from oculomotor deficits to really your high yield areas are your brainstem, but really any deficit that can raise suspicion that there's an intracranial process going on because you might be the one to pick up the subtle weakness in their arm or, or change in their gait that's related to the big brain tumor gooba growing in their head that is causing their headaches. And that a, a very thorough exam is gonna be key. And there's not one key feature that you can look for. It's just being diligent and thorough and saying something doesn't look right. And uh, following your patients diligently will clue you into that. The onset of headaches is pretty important. If you have, as we all learned, thunderclap onset headaches, that's a red flag. If someone who hasn't had headaches or even does have a history of migraine suddenly develops a headache that develops over seconds and hit maximal intensity, that's a red flag for subarachnoid hemorrhage and acute intracranial process of any degree and warrants further workup. Right. Other things that go with onset are what I call the other O is the older and younger. So anyone who develops headaches before five really needs to be looked at closely and anyone who just out of the blue starts developing headaches at 50. And sometimes you get, as I mentioned before, the new daily persistent headache. Mm -hmm. This is the patient who comes in who's like 55 and says, 
I never really had headaches or I had one here and there, but I developed headaches on like June 1st of 2022 on that exact date. And I never had them before and they never went away. That's your red flag that you need to do a more thorough workup and to dig into this history to avoid missing something that's not just a primary headache. Positional headaches, whether your patients, and this is a very high yield question to ask, do your headaches get better when you sit up or when you lay down? If your patient's headaches are worse when they're laying down, that suggests a process where you have increased pressure in the head. Whereas if someone says, no, I feel fine when I lay down, but the minute I sit up, my headaches are worse, that either suggests a low pressure process or the commonly missed Chiari malformation pathophysiology. So it's a really significant red flag and obviously something you should look out for. Other than Chiari, are there any conditions where you can have low intracranial pressure other than where you get a lumbar puncture, for example, or an epidural? Yeah. So um, low CSF pressure headaches can be related to typically a few different processes. One, there's actually just spontaneous CSF leaks. You can get fistulas that form spontaneously or after trauma between your CSF and your veins. So it's a CSF venous fistula, and that can happen at the level of the spinal cord. And you can have spontaneous CSF leaks around the roots. Really, the CSF leaks that happen in your spine are sometimes precipitated by nothing or they're precipitated by trauma. And when they're precipitated by nothing, you should dig in and say, hey, does this person have some kind of collagen vascular disorder that predisposes them? And the only cautionary note that I make is that if you suspect a low pressure headache and the clinical history suggests it, you really wanna dig down and really look for the location of leak because there are surgical interventions and procedures that can be done to fix those patients. And obviously ask them if they've been doing LPs at home on themselves. That's very interesting. I've never heard of anything like this before. And I believe there is more to Snoop than what we just discussed position, right? So if you could just walk us through the rest of the P's. Of course. The remainder of the P's include precipitated by Valsalva. So basically all that means is if somebody's headaches are worsened when they bear down or cough, that's a red flag leading us back again to our Arnold Chiari is often precipitated by uh, Valsalva, but also intracranial mass lesions like coiloidal cysts can be related to Valsalva and in position. Other things to consider, papilledema. So not everyone's good at the fundoscopic exam. So if you're uncomfortable with whether you saw the discs or not, you can always just ask somebody if they had a recent dilated eye exam or recommend that they get one if you're suspecting intracranial hypertension as the cause of their headaches. The other clinical history feature is if these headaches are progressive. So if somebody's headaches just started or they've had headaches, but now they're progressively getting worse and worse and worse or changing in morphology as they're getting worse, then that's a red flag to dig into something other than this is just a run-of-the-mill headache. And whenever I'm talking about this and I'm being vague about what additional workup to do, the reason I say that is because it's really patient-dependent and your imaging can be from CT scan to CTVs or MR imaging and MR venography. And lastly, do I need to get an LP or not? And if you think about it, if you have your pregnant patient, you're not gonna throw them in the CT scanner you'd prefer an MRI and you can't give them contrast. 
versus your patient who you're looking for a neoplasm, you'd rather do an MRI than a CT. And if you're worried about aseptic meningitis, you're going to do a lumbar puncture. And that's not an exhaustive list. I would just think of this as whenever I hit a red flag in Snoop, I stop and think, what else do I need to do to work up this patient? I wanted to quickly ask you about another subgroup of patients, pregnant patients, even though we don't necessarily take care of them, we do see them in the hospital sometimes. Are there any red flags that we should be looking out for in that particular group of patients? Any specific questions we need to be asking? I think beyond just your typical SNOOP questions, no. But knowing that patients who are pregnant are at risk for specific diseases is notable. So for pregnant patients, you're really thinking about at what point in their pregnancy they're at. And beyond just headaches that are related to pregnancy, you really should counsel your patient who has migraines or other headaches before they get pregnant on the risks and benefits of the medications they're on, oftentimes because they're not approved for pregnancy. But the red flags really with pregnancy, and actually it's one of the P's in SNOOP, is because patients who are pregnant have risks for venous thromboses. They're at higher risk for dissection, if you think about it, during delivery. They're at risk for pituitary apoplexy. During delivery, there have been reported spontaneous CSF leaks as well. So knowing that the actual pregnant state, as well as the act of giving birth, can be a risk factor for secondary headaches is a really important thing to understand. Thank you for that. Very interesting. All right. Now that we've talked about some of the diagnostic approaches by physical exam and history, it would be great to learn more about preventative strategies and therapies available for the headaches types we've talked about. Sure. So for migraines, we have the most amount of evidence and the most therapies that exist. We've come a long way since giving Depakote to everybody who has a headache. And although, you know, it has level one evidence, it's fallen out of favor because of the side effect profile. And if you can think about our typical population is usually young, active, Depakote usually isn't a great option for them. So I'll take a step back. And when we're Thinking about treating patients, the spiel I usually give them is there are a couple stages to headache treatment and a couple of categories. There's your hyperacute therapy, which is this is my, oh crap, I need something to fix me right this second and I need to get somewhere close to normal. There's the acute therapy, which is I'm getting a headache and I need to abort it now. There's the prevention, which is I have enough headaches or they're disabling enough that I have decided it's worth it for me to take a medication every day or regularly to keep my headaches away. And the last one, which we sometimes forget, is bridging therapy, which is it can sometimes take time for our preventative measures to work. And you want to give something to get people over the hump or to keep the headaches kind of quelled. And this model typically works well for all the headache types. And counseling people on what everything does often helps you save time and a lot of pain when patients are confused about what their different medications are for. So if we jump into the acute treatments, I can't talk about acute treatments without talking about triptans, but hold your excitement. We'll talk about the less exciting NSAIDs and Tylenol. And I say (laughs) there is still a role for this stuff. And the reason I say this is it's 
if somebody has two migraines a month and they're successfully treated by NSAIDs and they're a reasonably responsible person who does not overuse them, if ibuprofen works for you, I should not be going any further than that. That would be irresponsible of me. So we really try to do the least that we need to, and we want to impact the patient's life as little as we can. We don't want to become more annoying than the headache itself. But let's say this first-line therapy doesn't work. Our triptans have always been our initial entry-level medications for acute therapy, not for prevention. And there are actually seven triptans. So the triptan that we're most used to is sumatriptan, which is pretty diverse because it has multiple formulations. You have the oral, you have the sub-Q formulation, and you have the nasal spray. And the reason why that's important is because if you can think back to what our migraine patients and our headache patients are dealing with, they're dealing with nausea, and they're sometimes in situations where they can't take an oral medication. And having an alternative route is key in this situation. Knowing the other ones is important because there's been a history of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, my sumatriptan didn't work, so that means no triptan's going to work. And we have good evidence that trying different triptans to fit the patient can sometimes help. And the reason is, is sumatriptan has a different half-life and different side effect profile to some of the other triptans. And oftentimes you'll get a patient who takes triptans and the reason it fails is because they don't like that warm vasomotor symptom that they get. Well, we have kinder, gentler, I like to call them at least triptans like neurotriptan, which has less of that and has a longer half-life. And knowing the half-lives of these medications is really important because if you have a patient who has headaches that last really long or the sumatriptan initially works, but it kind of peters off, medications like neurotriptan and frobotriptan have very long half-lives. So they can bridge that gap for people. Other formulations like risotriptan and zolmotriptan have disintegrating forms. So if somebody doesn't like sticking themselves in the leg or doesn't want to spray their nose, they can have this formulation where they can be out and have the medication with them and just throw it in their mouth and it'll dissolve and they can swallow it without water. So talking to your patients and really getting an idea of like what your headache experiences will help you pick the right triptan for them. But triptans aren't for everyone. So cautionary note is anyone with significant cardiovascular disease because as we know, triptans work through the serotonin pathway and there's a vasomotor response. So if you have somebody who has significant cardiovascular disease, you should work with them and really think before you jump right to a triptan. Only other thing to note about triptans that flies in the face of everything we've learned in medicine is we're taught to start with the lowest dose and increase. Whereas the education with triptans is go right to the full dose and take a step back if it's too much. And the reason is that with sumatriptan and other triptans, you oftentimes need the full dose to work. And people will get frustrated and annoyed by the medications when it doesn't work completely. And we tend to prescribe the full dose rather than the half dose. There are newer medications that have come to the market for acute therapy And they have fit into our treatment paradigm very well. So we have these uh, CGRP small molecules, or we call them the small molecule therapies. And those include ubrojapant and remijapant. 
and they have been approved for acute treatment. And Remigipan actually has been approved for prevention at a once every other day dosing. And it just adds another option and a migraine-specific therapy. The idea is that they're supposed to have less vasomotor effect. The only thing is they've been around less as long, so we don't know how they're going to perform in the general population. But in general, the side effects are usually pretty minimal. The last one that for acute therapy I will mention that's new is medication called lesmitidan. And that works through the serotonin 5-HDF pathway specifically. So like I said, you have that cardiovascular risk with triptans. People who you're worried about that, you can use lesmitidan because it doesn't have the vasoconstrictive effect. The only downside, and oftentimes I find the reason why I don't prescribe it, is after you take it, you can't operate heavy machinery or drive for at least eight hours. And so it's not a medication someone can take during the day. So a lot of people will say, well, hey, man, like, no, I can't take it because I need to live my life. Going beyond acute therapy, preventative therapy oftentimes has had this many headache days or that many headache days. I think what's important is just having a conversation with your patient and saying, hey, are these headaches bad enough or severe enough that it's worth it for you to take a medication every day? That is oftentimes more than enough rationalization to start a preventative therapy. If the answer is no, then you, you work with them. And if the answer is yes, then we have these traditional, I like to call them, which the medications that I like to say, like we figured out later that they help with headaches. And the ones that we have level one evidence, kind of like Depakote, Topamax or beta blockers. And then the level B, but often just used as much kind of our TCAs, our SNRIs. And the list is really long, so I'm not going to go through all of them. But knowing that we have all of these medications, it can be daunting to say, hey, like, what's the first one I pick? And there's no one medication that I would say is standard to start. You take your patient and you say, you look at them as a whole and you say, how can I leverage the side effects of this medication and the primary effect to do the best for my patient? And the example that we often use is our TCAs can sometimes be a little sedating. So We'll give it to people who have trouble sleeping at night and want headache prevention and tell them to take it at night to get a better night's sleep. People who are having trouble with weight loss, well, Topamax has a side effect that includes weight loss. And we say, well, let's pick that one for you. And currently, before we go to what I call the newer medications, we have to kind of go through a few of these more for insurance purposes. And there's kind of been a consensus agreement. You should at least try two before anyone will really approve you going to the next step in therapy. But there are situations where you can't prescribe them. And those are case-by-case situations. If there's a situation where all of these medications are contraindicated, you can't be forced to start one of them. It doesn't seem fair. And that brings us into our newer medications. And these are our CGRP monoclonals. And, you know, you see commercials about them. I'll try to just speak about them vaguely because I don't want to be a stooge for the drug company. But essentially, we have our CGRP receptor blockers, which is aranimumab. And then we have our monoclonal antibodies that target the actual CGRP molecule, which include galcanizumab and fremenizumab. And the benefit to these medications is that, you know, you don't have to take a medication every day. You can take it once every 28 days. And there are other dosing parameters that can spread that out even further. And people 
love that idea that, oh, I don't have to take nortriptyline every night. And if I forget to take my medication, then, you know, I'm not going to have headaches come back with these monoclonals. You just do a sub-Q injection at home and it's your patients. And there are also IV infusions that you can do in the, um, in the clinic. And the important things to consider about these new medications is thus far, they've been mostly safe, but with uh, arinitumab, there has been an association with constipation and high blood pressure. So knowing that that exists, you should keep that in mind when you're prescribing them. Thank you, Dennis. Actually, if we could go back to your original point of not messing with success and if patient tolerates NSAIDs and they work just fine, not intervening and not offering any further treatment with sumatriptans for acute intervention. My understanding is that taking too much of NSAIDs can cause a headache of its own. So can you talk a little bit more about where the line is between taking NSAIDs for migraine treatment versus when it becomes an NSAID-induced headache? Sure. So when we talk about NSAID-induced headache, or now what we usually call it is analgesic-induced or analgesic-related headaches, we are talking about headaches that are occurring as a result of the actual abortive therapy itself. And the reason we say analgesics is because although NSAIDs can cause it, but so can Tylenol, and the teaching is that the more complex mixed therapies are the ones that are actually the highest risk. So even your your highest risk ones actually are like the furacet or the butalbital complexes in addition to your quote-unquote Tylenol migraine with three different you know NSAIDs and caffeine in it. Those medications are at a higher risk. There are set number points for all the different types of headaches and it's worth a look. I like to think of it as what is too much and there's a reason when we prescribe triptans, we typically only give eight to nine per month. And that's because beyond a certain amount, you start getting into what we call analgesic overuse. And I, I dislike that term because it kind of blames the patient. I think it's more of a failure on our part to appropriately prevent their headaches. So it's, you know, it's really the analgesic that's causing the problem. The key literature that's come out for this that's important is that just because a headache medication is the one that's causing the headaches doesn't mean you need to stop it right then and there. So what we like to do is if somebody is taking NSAIDs and they're taking it too much is we try to figure out one, why are they taking it too much? How can we optimize their prevention and their lifestyle risk factors to reduce their headaches? And how can we appropriately and reasonably cut down that medication over time to bring it back to a range that is acceptable and to keep it from causing headaches. And there was actually recent literature that came out that that switching doesn't necessarily help. Although one study should not completely change your practice, it's just something you should keep in mind. All right, I think the last treatment left to discuss is Botox injections. Could you tell us a little bit more about its role in migraine treatment? Of course. So Botox really comes into the treatment paradigm when you're thinking about chronic migraine. So when your patient has had headaches, more than 15 headache days a month, for at least three months, they fall into that camp of chronic migraine. And we offer, in addition to now that we have these other options, the monoclonals or remigipant as prevention, we say, hey, 
there's this long-standing medication that's been out there and we do have it as an option to prevent your headaches. The only real significant side effect is really that you need to get a bunch of injections on your head and it's a significant time commitment. So if people are scared of needles or they have a busy lifestyle, like they're a resident, it's really hard to come in every three months and dedicate a, a visit. So far we've been talking about migraine therapies and preventative strategies but we haven't talked much about cluster headache therapies. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So the first thing that your cluster headache patient will ask is, how do I make this stop when it happens? Because they're, you know, I can't say this enough, they're very perturbed by these headaches. They're really disabling. And so the one that we learn all the time and that we're tested on is the high flow oxygen. And keep in mind that that's 12 to 15 liters of oxygen and typically it's given uh, over a period of, of about 20 to 30 minutes. So when you do that, you can't just use a nasal cannula. And it can be pretty hard for patients to get a high flow oxygen tank at home. So oftentimes cost is a limiter there because it's really, it's an out of pocket thing. The other option that exists is the sub-Q sumatriptan. The reason we use the sub-Q is it can get in quickly and you can get the um, effective therapy in without needing to take an oral medication and it's pretty fast acting. So now you want to know, how do I keep these headaches away? And the old school medication that we use is verapamil. The only issue is, is like you know, verapamil is a blood pressure medication yep. and the dose is relatively high, 240 to 720 milligrams is what you need for a therapeutic dose. So if the patient starts getting lightheaded on the initial dose, you know, the best therapy is the one that works. Yep. So now we have an option, which is galcanizumab, which is approved for treatment of cluster headache. And I say this for last, but that's because it's the most important. And beyond medications and all of these therapies that we have, we have to treat our patients like individuals and really digging into their headaches and how it affects their lives is important, but going in reverse and seeing how their lives affect their headaches is almost as important as well. So when you're screening a patient for their headaches, you should always look into what they do for a living, what exposures they have, what triggers their headaches, and if that trigger is something they encounter on a daily basis. An example I can give is I had a patient who worked in a factory and she had migraines that were triggered by the scents in her warehouse. And rather than taking Topamax every day, which didn't work for her, we just asked and I wrote her a letter for her work to see if she can be in a place where they didn't have it. She stopped having headaches. So dig into their lives, get to know who they are. Screening for sleep triggers such as alcohol, you want to look at their medications to see if there's anything that can be contributing to. Either that can be interfering with your medication therapy or that can be in and of itself contributing to headaches or worsening things in their lives that can worsen their headaches, like medications that can interfere with sleep or with stress levels and really digging into their medical history and family history. Beyond that, things you can tell your patients to actively do is there is an association between physical activity, good sleep hygiene, and adequate hydration that are key recommendations that you can make to somebody to help mitigate their headaches. What I have always done is I recommend people keep a headache diary 
And what that is, is you can either have an app or a calendar. And I just recommend that they write when their headaches are happening, at what time of day and for how long. And if they could think of any triggers at the time that were attributed to their headaches. And when you get your three month headache diary, you could pick out what and where is causing their symptoms. And that can be the biggest intervention that you make for somebody and tell them if you cut this and the other thing out, you don't need a medication to keep your headaches away. And this is not purely just for migraines. This can be done for the other headache uh, syndromes. And in and of itself, it can help you make the diagnosis when you have an atypical headache or a less common headache because you'll get to see the temporal pattern of the headache and how it's occurring and what's triggering it. So it's a very useful tool and I recommend everyone use it. Thank you so much for your time, Dennis. I really wish we had done this before I took my boards. This was a very comprehensive overview of headache, and I'm sure our residents will have a better grasp of this topic now. We hope this alleviated some of their headache of having to study this topic for upcoming in training or step. This is all we have for you today. We hope you learned something new today, and we'll see you in our next episode.